Hello, my name is Jan Paulsen. I'm a triple national of Sweden, France, and Bahrain. And I've been an international lawyer for 30 years, specializing in the field of international arbitration, uh, where I've represented 23 states in various international arbitrations. And by now, I've participated in about 500 uh, arbitrations altogether. Uh, I also teach uh, at the uh, universities of Cambridge and Dundee, the London School of Economics, University of Miami, and the Institut de Sciences Politiques in Paris. The title of my lecture is The Power of States to Make Meaningful Promises to Foreigners. States tend to be annoyed when a foreigner claims that they have violated legal obligations. States are even more irritated when they are required to defend themselves before an international court or tribunal. Is this a violation of their sovereignty? In this lecture, I will deal with three broad themes. First, I wish to consider the proposition that a voluntary restriction on sovereignty is not a violation of sovereignty. Secondly, if restrictions on sovereignty are a matter of sovereign choice, what are the reasons for accepting such limitations? Thirdly, what are good practices in circumstances when a state has accepted certain limitations of its sovereignty? If this is to be an inquiry into the concept of sovereignty, we need to begin by considering the meaning of the word. It is important not to use the word sovereignty in a childish sense. It does not mean I do what I want. It certainly does not mean all-powerful. Children dream of omnipotence. They imagine when they become adults and no longer have to ask for their parents' permission, they will attain this dream of making sovereign decisions. But as adults know, every day we confront the reality of a thousand reasons why we cannot do whatever we want. This may seem obvious. A more interesting question is whether sovereignty even if it does not give us the power to overcome the forces of nature or even the effects of accidents and miscalculations, at least means that no one else can tell us what to do. This question merits some reflection. If all men are equal, then in this sense, every person would be sovereign. No one could tell any one of us how I must behave. But the fact is that individual human beings do not really want to be sovereign in this extreme sense. We are willing to give up some of our freedom. Indeed, we insist on the opportunity of making a bargain. We accept that criminal law apply to us so that we can be protected by those same laws. We accept that we have to pay for our reckless behavior so that we can live in greater tranquility because that rule has the consequence that our fellow citizens will tend to behave less recklessly. And we accept that we are held to a bad bargain because if our contracts are not binding, will we, we will be stuck in the poverty of a primitive economic system where every transaction is instant, cash and carry. Unable to create wealth by shared enterprise, by investment, or the strength of long-term commitments, or by access to capital from willing lenders. States, too, have such motives for accepting legal limitations on their future conduct. And just as individuals must accept that none of this would have any meaning if every individual had the sovereign right to decide whether he is guilty of criminal conduct recklessness or breach of contract, so too a state must, ex must accept that it cannot be the judge of a controversy as to whether it has transgressed legal limits. No one, even a state, can be a judge in his own cause. These concepts are simple, but they demand mature reflection. Dictatorships seek to abuse law and seek to disguise this abuse by pretensions of sovereignty. Intellectually, this is at the level of childishness, 
but far more dangerous. So let us turn to a famous example of a limitation on sovereignty. On the 21st of March, 1921, a British steamship named the SS Wimbledon, operating under charter by a French transporting company, was informed by the German authorities that it would not be allowed to transit through the Kiel Canal, which runs through northern Germany, connecting the Atlantic to the Baltic Seas. This incident gave rise to an important international debate on the issue of the limitations of sovereignty. The French government espoused the claim of its national, that's the word that is used, took up the claim of its national, and stated that Germany had violated international law and should be ordered to pay reparations. The ship was carrying munitions loaded in Greece and destined for the Polish naval base at Danzig. As a result of the German refusal of transit, the Wimbledon was immobilized for 11 days and then had to seek longer passage north of Denmark. Germany contended that it had been in its right, pursuant to its own national neutrality orders by relation to the then ongoing Russo-Polish war, which prohibited the transit of such cargo. So you have national orders prohibiting this cargo transiting uh, the, Nor the German canal. France, joined by Britain, Italy, and Japan, brought suit before the Permanent Court of International Justice. That is the predecessor of today's International Court of Justice. These claimants all asserted that the German refusal of transit violated certain provisions of the famous Treaty of Versailles to the effect that the Kiel Canal was to be, I quote, be maintained free and open to the vessels of commerce and war of all nations at peace with Germany on terms of entire equality. Germany was entitled under the treaty to impose charges and regulations, but only provided that they did not unnecessarily impede traffic. The Permanent Court of International Justice recognized that Germany had, and I quote, sovereign rights which no one disputes that she possesses over the Kiel Canal. But those rights were subject to a limitation, namely the Versailles Treaty. Germany argued that its right as a neutral power to decide whether munitions destined for a country at war were as Germany put it, an essential part of its sovereignty, which could not be waived by agreement. The Permanent Court of International Justice disagreed and ordered Germany to pay compensation to France on account of its national, the transport company. Here is the wording of an off, often quoted passage from the court's judgment, which was rendered in 1923. The court declines to see in the conclusion of any treaty by which a state undertakes to perform or refrain from performing a particular act an abandonment of its sovereignty. No doubt, any convention creating an obligation of this kind places a restriction upon the exercise of the sovereign rights of the state in the sense that it requires them to be exercised in a certain way. But the right of entering into international engagements is an attribute of state sovereignty. The right of entering into international engagements is an attribute of state sovereignty. That is a simple sentence, but it has great weight. The ability to make a binding commitment is part of what makes a state a state. We are talking about the power to make a meaningful promise. If states did not have that power, they would be handicapped. The act of limiting possible conduct tomorrow is an exercise of authority today. And if that act is to be internationally meaningful, 
it must first of all create binding obligations and secondly be evaluated by an external court or tribunal. It is really no different than what we see in relations among ordinary individuals. A man whose promises mean nothing will have great difficulties in life. He will have to work alone and he will always have to pay cash. So let us move to our second theme, which is to ask the question, now that we know that the capacity to agree to binding limitations on sovereignty is an attribute of that same sovereignty, why should any state make such agreements? Well, there are many answers. Some have to do with a wish to exercise leadership. A state is unlikely to be accepted as a global leader and to, conv and to convince other states to cooperate in certain ways unless it shows that it abides by the same commitments. Or the impulse to make international commitments may be an expression of popular will. As political candidates identify a public desire for the expansion of certain values, such as human rights or environmental protection. Those politicians are elected on such a platform and once in office are prepared to join leaders of other countries to pursue a common goal to secure those values. But perhaps it is easiest for the purposes of analysis to focus on a type of limitation on future government conduct which is accepted by the state as a predominant matter of self-interest through the mechanism of treaties for the promotion and protection of foreign investors. There are over 2,000 bilateral treaties of this kind. They are commonly referred to as BITs, bilateral investment treaties. Although they are not identical in every detail, they almost invariably contain four commitments. First, each state promises that it will not nationalize the investments made by nationals of the other state or take steps equivalent to nationalization without requisite compensation. Second, each state promises that it will not discriminate against the nationals of the other state. Third, each state promises that it will treat investors from the other state in accordance with international law and therefore, perhaps first and foremost, in accordance with the concept of fair and equitable treatment. Finally, these three broad substantive commitments are given force by a fourth promise, which is that each state accepts that any claim of violation of the three substantive promises may be brought by the complaining investor to international arbitration. That's the nature of these BITs, now signed by a very large number of states. There have, over the past 20 years, been hundreds of arbitrations under these treaties. In all of those arbitrations, the state has been the defendant. Sometimes the state has won in its defense. Sometimes it has lost. Sometimes the result was not wholly favorable to either side. But states never enjoy having to defend themselves before an external body. Some of these cases have been politically controversial. Sometimes it has been pointed out that the arbitrators were private persons. And it has been asked whether it is a violation of sovereignty to be bound by their decisions. We have already seen that that is a bad question. It is not a violation of sovereignty to be held to the state's own commitments. The good question is rather whether it is in a state's interest to give the promises contained in these BITs. And some do wonder if it is not against a state's interest to agree to BITs, even though so many, over 2,000, have been signed. So let us examine the possible objections. Are BITs inherently unfair? 
Well, if that question is designed to probe the issue of whether BITs and the promises they contained were invented by powerful investor acting through their home states who conduct themselves in the interest of these powerful investors, if that is the question, it is not a valid objection. Because if this were so, we would test that proposition by looking at BITs which were entered into develop by developing states on both sides. We would look at BITs where both of the countries involved are capital importing on balance and see what those BITs contain. There are many BITs which we might call South-South. And if we look at those BITs, what do we find? The same four promises. So evidently, in these circumstances, when the negotiators on both sides are thinking about what it is appropriate to promise foreign investors, they conceive of the same things as being fair. No expropriation without requisite compensation, no discrimination, and fair and equitable treatment in accordance with international law. And if there is a complaint about the non-observance of these promises, then the fourth one, access by the alleged victim of these violations to international arbitration. In fact, the very first of the modern arbitrations by which directors, uh, investors were able to pursue states directly in international arbitration did not involve a BIT at all. It was a case where Egypt was the respondent state and the case arose not under a treaty but under an Egyptian law, the famous law number 43 of 1974, which opened the door to foreign investment, a successful law which ended a period of Egyptian isolation. Well, the investor in this first case acted under that law. Well, you see the point. That law was enacted by the Egyptian parliament. The Egyptian parliament is not comprised of foreign interests. The Egyptian parliamentarians themselves decided what was appropriate to promise investors in this national law. And what did they promise? The same four things. And that gave rise to an international arbitration, which happened to be the first in the modern series of investor protection cases. Very recently, a case arose between Yemen and Oman, two neighboring Arabic states with a BIT whose official texts exists only in Arabic. In translation, we find it too contains the four famous promises. And so the disappointed investor in that case brought a case, it was an Omani party, brought a case against Yemen uh, before uh, international arbitration and obtained reparation for the violation uh, of the promises contained in that treaty. Let's look at another possible objection. Are the arbitrations themselves or the arbitrators unfair? Well, that could happen in a given case, but it doesn't seem to be the case broadly speaking. Of course, there have been states who have lost international arbitrations. One was the case of Yemen against Oman and complaints about those losses but since time immemorial, losers in legal cases do tend to complain. If one looks at the lists of winners, they are considerable. For example, there have been international arbitrations brought by investors whose claims were not even considered by the arbitral tribunal because the arbitrators were convinced that the contracts or the investments, the investment approvals involved had been obtained by corruption. And therefore, the arbitrators rejected the, the claims without even examining whether they might have merit in the substance of it. Because the way 
the contracts or the, the admission of the investment were obtained violated uh, norms of public policy because the arbitrators were convinced that there had been illegal conduct. And so states like Kenya, El Salvador, the Philippines obtained the result of total rejection of the claims against them on that ground. Other states who have won their arbitrations have obtained significant award of costs when the foreign investor has lost. That has been the case of Hungary, Ukraine, Pakistan. In one of these cases, uh, as a consequence uh, of the international arbit arbitration, the foreign investor paid the entirety of the legal fees of the respondent say, state and issued a public apology for having brought a wrongful case. In many other cases, there has been recovery by the foreign investor, but in modest amounts. And actually, it's probably wrong to try to count up wins and losses, because the real question might be this, whether a problem which might create a lot of political tension is resolved in a businesslike and efficient way. And if you look at it this way, in fact, even though the population of a country might think that the only good outcome is for its own state to win the case, but if you look at it this way, it might be a great benefit for the host state actually to lose in a reasonable, legitimate amount and to lose with a good attitude and to pay up. What better proof that would satisfy the foreigners and give them assurance in the way things work in the country and the way they are treated under the international instruments pursuant to which they have made their investment. Indeed, it might be better and safer to have a neutral international tribunal deal with the problem than to have a powerful investor who has insinuated himself in the local community to use and possibly abuse local courts to use its power and obtain a result which international arbitrators would not countenance. That may have been the case with Kenya, because at the time of the case I mentioned, the Kenyan government's own reports uh, of its judiciary suggested that there were problems with the Kenyan courts that enabled foreigners to abuse uh, those courts, and a very famous commission was set up to deal with that particular problem at the time. At any rate, if one wants an example of how to achieve a reputation for living in accordance with international commitments, one might consider Mexico after its signature of the North American Free Trade Agreement. NAFTA, as it's commonly referred to, contains similar promises as those of BITs, including access to international arbitration. Of course, NAFTA involves three countries, the US and Canada, in addition to Mexico. So it is a multilateral treaty and not a bilateral one. At any rate, as a result of entering into NAFTA, Mexico, during the course of the years following enactment of NAFTA, had to face a number of international complaints brought by investors in Mexico. And some of those cases, Mexico lost. But not in vast amounts. Mexico paid those amounts. And we have had statements by Mexican officials pointing out that NAFTA brought to Mexico huge benefits, vastly disproportional to the minuscule disadvantage of having to make some payments to investors. Some investors who might anyway, anyway have recovered in local courts or create a lot of disturbance domestically and possibly reputational loss. So a good example of dealing with the consequences of having made international commitments. Now we come to an interesting point which is often raised. Do BITs, do this, does the signing of BITs lead automatically to an increase of investments? 
Well, this inquiry is a complex one, and it seems that that simple question is wrongly put. The proposition cannot be proved. Does the signature of a BIT automatically lead to an increase in investment? And in fact, even though you cannot prove it, it seems unlikely to be true. Let me put it this way. If the recipient state is insolvent, and if it has poor internal governance, it is unlikely that merely signing a BIT would cause an increase of investment. Or if you look at it the opposite way, if a country is solvent and has good governance, there will be investment even though that state has not signed a BIT. What the role of BITs must be seen as is a part of a slow and very broad process of demonstrating commitment to the, re the reliability of one's own promises in a far broader way than the BIT itself viewed in isolation. And this explains the proliferation of these international uh, instruments. This slow process of demonstrating commitment to the reliability of one's own promises must be carried out in many ways. Internal transparency, internal efficient and predictable governance, internal stable procedures, plus respect for the rule of law and respect for international commitments. BITs are one way of achieving the rule of law. Think about it. A country which has the rule of law has nothing to fear from signing a BIT, has nothing to fear from international law. You might also think of the situation of a country which already has investors. Not so much about the attraction of new investors, but what about the investors who are already there? They are reassured by the existence of BITs or the adhesion to BITs and will make them feel more committed to that country, feel more likely to continue to reinvest and to remain in the long term. Now, the purpose of international mechanisms to protect investment, at any rate, is not to benefit multinational corporations. Only a fool would think there is an abstract reason to favor multinational corporations. We look with favor at claims of, national, of corporations only if corporations fulfill a purpose. They don't have rights as such to exist or to benefit from anything in, in particular. So, in fact, the purpose that we're looking for is to see why international law should protect investors or their investment. And it can be put this way. It is not because of some abstract reason to promote corporations as, as, as entities. It is that with protection of investors, in the long run, investors will be motivated to invest for the longest time possible and for the least possible return. That's the purpose of creating a regime for protecting investments to create incentives for the longest possible duration of the investment for the lowest possible return. That's the benefit to the state which makes these promises. You can always get somebody to speculate in a lawless country, but only if there is a spectacular rate of return. And then that investment and those quick profits leave the country quickly. That's a costly kind of investment, costly to the state. That's not the kind of investment poor countries need.
So let us conclude with respect to this second theme. The idea that states may be held accountable under international law by arbitral tribunals created by treaty is neither new nor radical. There were, in fact, hundreds of such cases in the 19th century, although then there were not BITs. The defendant states back then were of all types, including the rich and powerful. They were European as well as ex-colonial. International tribunals held the United States responsible for actions which the United States Supreme Court had declared not to be breaches of international law. Those awards were nevertheless respected by the United States, even though the U.S. Supreme Court had declared conclusions which were contrary to the conclusions of the International Tribunal. When one of the most illustrious of all awards was handed down against Great Britain in the Alabama Claims case of 1872, the British arbitrator issued a harsh dissent calling the award of some $15 million in gold unjust. But his government, far more powerful at the time than the United States, nevertheless paid the amount awarded. This tradition of respect for international law, as applied by international tribunals, should be kept in mind by modern critics of investment arbitration. Such critics sometimes imagine that international tribunals can be paralyzed by declarations of municipal courts to the effect that the treaties creating international jurisdiction are contrary to national constitutions. But to suggest that the alleged requirement of a nation's own constitution may neutralize the international undertakings of its government flies in the face of international law itself. It may happen that such undertakings are in excess of power under national law. They may give sanctions, give rise to sanctions under national law, but they do not, provided of course that the appearance of authority is sufficient for the purposes of international law. They do not prevent anyone from relying on those undertakings on the international plane. As the late Judge Keba Ambai, former Vice President of the International Court of Justice and former First President of the Supreme Court of Senegal once put it, I quote, a state must not be allowed to cite the provisions of its law in order to escape from an arbitration that it has already accepted. Lord Mustel, who once sat in the House of Lords, suggested that, and I quote again, perhaps it should be classed as, as perhaps it should be classed as a principle of international ordre public. This concept was firmly endorsed in a landmark arbitration brought by a German private party against not a developing country but Belgium in 1984. It has even been incorporated into the national law of Switzerland, which provides that when a state is a party to an arbitration agreement, it cannot rely on its own law to contest the arbitrability of a dispute or its own capacity to be a party to an arbitration. Criticism of international tribunals on the grounds that they impede democratic policies, whether protection of the environment or the labor market, is misdirected. International tribunals do not establish policy. They give effect to international agreements. To deny the authority of international tribunals is to deprive states of the power to make meaningful promises. The French professor Pierre Marier wrote a lengthy and fundamental article in 1986, which he referred to as the neutralization of the normative power of the state with respect to agreements entered into by states. And there he asked as follows, I'm now quoting Professor Maillet, is it not paradoxical that the exaltation of sovereignty over natural resources implies preventing the sovereign state 
from entrusting their temporary exploitation by a foreign corpor corporation possessed of the national of the necessary capital and technology on the grounds that the state cannot validly accord the guarantees required by the corporation. He continued, to allow states to undo their commitments means in practice to forbid them from making undertakings in the future. For the Francophones, he said, this forbids them to permettre aux États de se délier. C'est en pratique leur interdire de se lier dans le futur. Well, since we're speaking about Professor Mayer, when France wanted to ensure that the Walt Disney Corporation would build Euro Disneyland outside Paris and not in Spain, the French Parliament passed a special law to authorize the government to accept the jurisdiction of international arbitration under ICSID, the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, in agreements, I quote, with foreign corporations for the implementation of operations having a national interest. This was called the Euro Disney Law. The U.S. corporation had been adamant about a neutral jurisdiction in the event of a dispute with the government. Now, criticism of international tribunals on the grounds that they should operate more efficiently, transparently, coherently, and fairly are entirely legitimate. No human institutions are perfect. International arbitral tribunals have existed for many generations. Complaints by those disappointed in their awards have existed for precisely as long. One must be careful to recognize criticism, which is only a cover for the disinclination to obey international norms. It thus seems that many of those who challenge the legitimacy of international adjudication are taking aim at the wrong target. They criticize the principle of the supremacy of international law when the real complaint has to do with the choices made by their own government in making the bargains reflected in international treaties. And that is a very different matter. The mistake is a dangerous one. For what happens, what will happen if one were to destroy the authority of international law? What then does it matter that such critics are right as they believe about the policy? What will they do once they have prevailed, once they have achieved agreement as to the rules for whatever good they are undoubtedly seeking, protection of the environment, the elimination of child labor, the proper treatment of persons accused of crime, an adjustment of the terms of trade in favor of impoverished producers denied access to markets. We all believe in these goals, but there are different ways of achieving them. And if it is not through international adjudication, if the rule of international law is dismantled, what a hollow victory indeed to stand there empty-handed, soon too long for the shattered tool. To sum up, in the field of international investments, arbitral tribunals are the instruments of the rule of law. Their purpose is not to favor the rich, but to enable states to make reliable promises. To undermine that reliability is to deprive the state of a valuable tool. Arbitral tribunals are not to be blamed for the contents of treaties. International tribunals tend to irritate respondent states, whether they are rich or poor, in individual cases. Yet their decisions should be respected in order to achieve the long-term benefits of the rule of law. Respect for settled and legitimate expectations is a precondition for healthy international relations. And finally, our third theme. It will be the shortest. What should a state do once it has accepted certain limitations of its sovereignty by making these promises to foreigners? Or, in a very broad terms, the question is, what are best practices once a state has signed 
BITs. Now, in many countries, international arbitration is viewed in a defeatist and defensive way. There seems to be a failure to perceive that effective use of the arbitral process is an important task in managing, managing international economic relations. Indeed, in managing the national debt. Wherever such defeatist views prevail, the attachment of foreign investors to the arbitral process will continue to be viewed as part of the rich man's strategy to take unfair advantage. To be more specific, here are some themes of defensiveness or defeatism which have caused the third world to take a negative view of international arbitration. One, states are reluctant to subject themselves to the jurisdiction of tribunals that are not part of their own appara national apparatus. This is generally an especially important reflex on the part of newly independent nations where the weaknesses of the local private sector are such that foreign investors and international banks demand direct contractual commitments by the state itself. As national economies develop, it becomes increasingly rare that ministries act directly as signatories to private law contracts. Secondly, when developing countries find themselves in international arbitration with foreign investors, they often participate with misgivings or even bitterness. Such feelings tend to intensify over time as new officials or indeed new regimes look back critically on the work of their th predecessors. The third attitude stems from the fact that parties from developing countries may misunderstand the international arbitral process in a number of ways. They assume wrongly or they may do so, that it is a mechanism designed for the protection of the investor, when in fact it is a two-way street with significant advantages to the state as compared even to its domestic courts. It should be obvious that the failure of foreign investors to fulfill contractual undertakings may give rise to important and justified claims, and that the only reliable way to turn such claims into money is to have a comprehensive dispute resolution system. International arbitral awards tend to be vastly more enforceable as a practical matter than domestic court judgments, which benefit from very limited recognition abroad, abroad where the foreign investor has its assets. The fact is that experience over the past 30 years has shown that serious governments, even in poor countries, are able to use the international process of arbitration very successfully. Moreover, the leading international arbitral institutions have responded to the vast changes in the identity of their users by making corresponding, or, corresponding organic changes in their governing structure. For example, and this surprises many people, a majority of the members of the International Chamber of Commerce Court of International Arbitration are today neither European nor North American. Serious foreign investors understand that it is in their own interest that states with which they contract have lasting confidence in international arbitration. Now, it serves no purpose to tell host states that they should respect the international arbitral process because it is the right and decent thing to do and that in the long run, foreign investors will think better of them for it. To get anywhere, one must rather understand that the arbitral process is something that they can use effectively to their concrete economic benefit. In this connection, it seems to be a serious mistake to focus on the opposition between investor and host state. The true important dividing line goes within the community of investors. There are good investors and there are bad investors. The good investor is there for the long term, 
wants to make a decent return, and this is understood by everyone from the beginning. In order to merit that reward, the good investor expects that he will be held responsible to make a real contribution, which he is happy for anyone to evaluate at any time. His enemy is not the host state because they have shared interests, but the bad investor, a dubious operator who wants to make a quick profit, huge profits, perhaps for shoddy goods, procuring signatures on all sorts of opaque documents, contracts, amendments, and certificates designed as a legal cover for poor performance. The bad investor creates a bad climate which also harms the good investor. Those who operate transparently, professionally, and rigorously, and thus create an atmosphere of seriousness and reliability, are on the same side whether they represent an investor or a government. They are united in their desire for an environment in which long-term legitimate expectations may be relied on. If such an environment is brought about, and if the bad investors are discouraged from ever coming, or flushed out if they have come, many dubious debts will evaporate and ministers of finance will sleep better. How may such a good environment be created and maintained? It seems clear that good practice includes rigor and professionalism in monitoring foreign investment as it enters the country, as it is implemented, and as returns on investment flow back to the investor. Those are good practices. It seems equally clear that bad practice is to sign a BIT and then forget about it. Unfortunately, as my father often said, a good example is admired, a bad example is followed. But this cycle of negligence can surely be broken. There are many capital importing countries which develop serious and enduring structures to channel investments generated by BITs and generated by harmonious international uh, relations in positive ways. This does not happen automatically. Signing the BIT is only the beginning of the work to be done to manage the flows of investment in a constructive, serious, rigorous way. For example, there is a Latin American country which has signed numerous BITs which shortly after having done so, created an investment committee, an interministerial investment committee, uh, comprised of highly competent people recruited to create the structural means of welcoming these investments and channeling them properly. This country has set up websites for the purposes of educating the foreign investments as to what they could expect in the country. Beyond that, the website is available to the foreign investors in five different languages, including languages common to major capital exporters. A very pragmatic step to take. Such information to investors, as is done in the example I just gave, include clear regulations, clear explanations as to how approvals and licenses are granted, transparent decision-making. Such, practice, such practices include reducing the mysteriousness of governance and thus to eliminate the opportunities for corruption. The problem with approvals obtained with corruption goes far beyond the corruption itself because, of course, corruption leads to bad decisions. Another example in Asia is the country of Malaysia, which has signed some BITs with a special approval mechanism. Now, this is one way among many to implement monitoring 
of the BIT flows. Again, this is a country which has an investment council or committee which screens investments and which explains to investor what it is that is expected of them and what they can expect as they enter the country. But in some of these BITs, in addition, they make clear that only those investments which have been approved will attain the benefits of the BIT including the three substantive uh, promises and the fourth one, access to international arbitration. In a case a few years ago, a Belgian investor brought a case against Malaysia claiming that his investment had been treated in a way which was contrary to the BIT between his country and Malaysia. But he was a portfolio investor in the Kuala Lumpur Stock Exchange and that investment had not been notified to the Malaysian government and under that BIT there was an an, a requirement of an approval before an investment would be covered by the BIT. And so the international tribunal in that case did not even consider the merits of the claim. It was simply not entitled to hear a claim, or to put it properly, the investor was not entitled to seek an international remedy because in his case, he was not properly covered by the BIT. So you see, although the purposes of agreeing to limitations on sovereignty is to gain the power of making meaningful promises, those promises go only as far as they go and no further. That too is an essential element of international law. I hope you have found this lecture interesting and that it will be of some use to you. Thank you.